Welcome to Bruin One Ear and Out the Other. Our guest on today's podcast is Tom Norris. We're excited to talk to Tom Norris about his role as a political and protocol officer for the British Embassy in Seoul. So without further ado, here is our interview. Hi, Tom. Thanks for joining us on Bruin One Ear and Out the Other. Thanks. Glad to be here now. So because this is a UCLA-themed podcast, one of the things we like to do is ask one of the questions that current applicants have to answer as part of the application process. As always, we think it serves as a great introduction for our listeners. And so the prompt we've chosen for you today is, every person has a creative side, and it can be expressed in many ways, problem solving, original and innovative thinking, and artistically, to name a few. Describe how you express your creative side. Well, I think that I express my creative side when I play soccer, not always to great effect, but I've played that like creative midfield role. So ideally, you want to be like using your creativeness to get some goals scored. <laughs> um, but I think also in my job, there's a fair amount of creativity needed for problem solving. So I think of the work of diplomacy kind of like journalism you're kind of reporting on what's going on in the country and you're telling your capital you're telling dc you're telling london hey this is the issue this is really bad but whereas a journalist would kind of end the article there and say this is terrible as like someone in an embassy as a diplomat it's your job to be creative and think huh well given our country's resources given uh like what our embassy can do why don't we think of something to solve this issue something to alleviate it something to help and then you write that back to the capital and they say huh that's a pretty good idea way to be creative and you try and get the job done ideally so your current role so you currently serve as the political and protocol officer in the british embassy at seoul so tell us a little bit about kind of what your job entails Sure, sure. So I'm actually a dual US-UK citizen. Like my parents moved from the UK to the US like the year before I was born to California. Is that what um, Prince Harry calls himself now? <laughs> maybe. Yeah, he's probably he's probably trying to get become a, a dual citizen, but I don't know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so like I'm, I'm actually also like a British citizen, but despite that, I'm uh, hired as a country-based staff. So I might like appear as if I'm one of like the diplomats, but actually I'm like uh, more in a support role and uh, doing a job that usually would be reserved for a Korean person to be doing. Um, but the thing is with the British embassy, and this is kind of different from American embassies that I've entered in before, is that the British embassy localizes a lot of its positions and places way more trust and faith in the country-based staff and the local staff to do responsibilities that they like might that you might think would be uh, done by a diplomat instead. And also when I'm having engagements with like Korean counterparts, I'm often kind of mistaken as being like a, a British diplomat. And so I get I really I, I kind of call it like diplomat cosplay 
in a sense because <laughs> I'm kind of like able to practice doing what I'm doing and and really train and learn but I'm also kind of treated as if I'm the real thing so it kind of felt like I skipped a bunch of steps and just like landed my dream job like way too soon um, but in terms of the actual like role and what I do um, one of the things I do is I help run the embassy's English for the Future program. So it's a free English program run through the British Council that is for North Korean defectors living in Seoul. And so that's something that I was really like passionate before getting this position. But it's really awesome to be able to uh, um, like directly run our own like English tutoring program through the embassy. And um, besides that, I've acted as an interpreter for um, one of our diplomats when she was meeting LGBT activists. I make biographies of like the new uh, Korean ministers, cabinet ministers. So like every time they like get in a scandal and have to quit, I'm just like, oh, bro, like now I gotta, I gotta write another biography next week because of this. Like, why couldn't you just like control yourself, be a better politician? But uh, like, wait, I'm gonna jump people, in. I'm going to yeah, jump, jump in, in here real time. quick. Is that something, are there that many scandals in Korea? There can't be more like, than there the are. Bar, the bar is so much higher, lower. I'm not sure, depending on your perspective, like what is considered a scandal here is like way more like, um, like it's much easier to have a scandal than it is in the US and the consequences are always greater. So like the guy who was uh, selected as minister for fisheries and oceans, um, I like made a bio about him and I was like, oh, this is really interesting. He actually worked in the embassy in London uh, for like the Korean embassy in London before. So we have something in common. This is great. Maybe we can like have an in there if we have any like fisheries engagement. And then like a week later, he's forced to resign from his position before he's even started it because his wife apparently bought a lot of like 3000 pieces of British China and then brought it back in her like diplomatic uh, like suitcase back to Korea and then like opened a cafe and sold some of the China that she had bought. But because she didn't pay tax on that China when she brought it in, they're like, no, your husband cannot become a fisheries minister. That's a scandal. <laughs> So he's done. I, like, I have to throw that bio like away. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, it sounds like it doesn't take a lot. That sounds like a very exactly. common thing that happens in the U.S. where yeah. some government official is, is taking some liberties. So Exactly. So it's just like, yeah, the, what's the scandal here is, <laughs> is way wider. And uh, like uh, something like COVID related, I know you guys have had like a bunch of like uh, COVID experts on your program recently but um uh so one of the things the British government is interested in because South Korea is kind of like an equal in many aspects like a uh, similar population size also basically an island because of the hard border of North Korea so it's kind of like a good comparison country like with the UK and so um they ask us to uh, describe Korea's COVID policies. Like when a tourist comes in and they have to isolate for two weeks, how do they select which hotel they're going in? When do they let them out? That type of thing. Um, so that's uh, kind of like the COVID aspect of my work. And then the protocol aspect is like managing the logistics 
of like important visitors and stuff like that. So um, every once in a while, something kind of crazy happens where I can um, like, uh, like last year I ended up giving Theresa May, the, for the former prime minister, a tour of a traditional market, which was a really strange experience, but one that I was able to do because I was the one managing the logistics. <laughs> So what was Theresa May like, if you don't mind us asking? She was, uh, she was really relaxed because like I'd only known her from like TV and just getting like hounded on Brexit all the time. But like because she was like kind of done with that, she was like in a much more like Zen state. She kind of like she kind of like reminded me of like kind of a divorced mom in a way, like someone who's like like obviously been through kind of a lot but is like out the other side now and is like living their own life you know living to the fullest and uh she she's kind of cool um she was really passionate about gender equality which i thought was nice like um we were having a tour of like a traditional korean like villa basically and the tour guide was like walking along the front of the house and it was like oh, well, if you were a nobleman, you would walk like this with your chest out and your hands behind you. And Theresa May was like, oh, and what about a noble woman? How would she be walking? And the guy was just like, oh, I don't know. But I was like, oh, you know, she, she, she truly does care about like gender equality, but I think she was like disappointed in a sense in a trip that way. But um, she was quite humorful and I felt like very relaxed to joke around with her like at one point during our tour the deputy head of mission was talking to her about the success of um k-dramas like on netflix if you've heard of like crash landing on you it's um like a k-drama about a south korean who ends up in north korea by mistake and it's kind of goofy but really fun and he was asking if she'd seen it before. And she's like, oh, no, I haven't. He's like, oh, it's on Netflix. And she's like, oh, I don't have it. And then I just like tripped and was like, oh, like you can borrow my account if you want. <laughs> like I'll show you the password. <laughs> and, you know, she didn't, she didn't get mad. So I guess she's kind of chill. <laughs> All right. So we wanted to, to ask a little bit about kind of your, your situation. Because I think what you've described so far is really interesting, but uh, very unique. I mean, the average person doesn't end up moving to a foreign country, setting up shop, and and kind of living and working in an embassy. So maybe can you walk us through a little bit about how you ended up in Seoul and, and what led you to South Korea? And then kind of what brought you to the, the British embassy? I know you talked about being a dual citizen. Yeah, for sure. It's um, kind of a long answer. So, so bear with me. But it like, just to give you a sense, it like begins my second year sort of third year UCLA and um, that's kind of where um, my interest in diplomacy kind of started so I had this like vague idea that I was into diplomacy and wanted to represent my country and uh, you know interact engage with other cultures on like really important issues and I had heard that there's the state department program where you could be an intern in an embassy for like the summer. And so in the application, they give you the option of picking two countries where you want to intern. And I looked at it and I was like, 
Wow, Spain and Switzerland sounds super nice. I'm going to apply for Spain and Switzerland this summer. And like everyone and their mom had applied for that, like those positions. And so, of course, I, I didn't get it. And then I was like, ah, oh, okay, well, obviously that was kind of silly to apply for the most popular places ever. So I decided to apply for the fall semester as there'd be less people. And I thought also, maybe I should apply for countries that no one's ever heard of or ones that are like under the radar. And so I, the first one I selected was the Dutch Lesser Antilles. But the other country that I picked to uh, apply for was Barbados. And that was just kind of this like, eh, it's also a small Caribbean nation. It's the fall semester, maybe no one else to pick it. And basically, I think that was the reason that I got picked for that because I didn't have any previous experience, right? So uh, I ended up taking the fall semester off my junior year. Like I just didn't go back to school for the junior year, which is a little bit scary <laughs> at the start. And um, eventually, after a couple months of waiting for a security clearance, I ended up getting to go to Barbados. And this is like November, December, January of that year. And um, I arrived and they had like an extra house basically that they would usually have for diplomats. But because I was like a, a new intern and like unpaid, by the way, they're just like, well, we'll just like let you be in one of these houses for a diplomat's family. And so I was just in this like three bedroom house all by myself for three months. <laughs> And um, like, that was great. But also, I just found that I loved the work. Like, it was just super interesting. And as I was saying before, like, you're engaging with not just like one culture, because the Barbados Embassy covered like six different islands. And so I was engaging with all of them, and really like, uh, fell in love with the work of a diplomat. And it was kind of like what I said before with the whole like journalism and creative thinking. That was the part that I really liked. And um, during this internship, I basically talked to the diplomats and said, how do I become like you? I want to be you. How do I do it? And they were like, hmm, well, I guess it might help if you just like tried to learn a hard language at university. Like you got a bit of time left. Why don't you give that a shot? That could be a pretty good asset. And like up until that point, uh, as a global studies major, you have to do a language anyway. And I had met the requirement of doing Spanish. But again, I was thinking like literally everybody can do Spanish in the US. <laughs> like that's not special at all. And I thought, well, I guess I should try and challenge myself. And so I just kind of looked at all the languages that I thought might be difficult. And I ended up picking Korean basically because they had an alphabet and I had this vague idea in my head. Well, you know what? Korea is actually like a perfect language to learn because North Korea is there, South Korea is there. Like that's the greatest diplomatic case I can think of for the future maybe. So why not learn that language? And so I went back to UCLA for the winter quarter with the mission of studying enough Korean by myself that I could enter the Korean three class in the spring, which is like biting off way more than I could chew. But basically by like studying enough to be able to like say my name and I was able to like 
beg the Korean three teacher to let me in and say, I'm going to take this pass fail. Like, don't worry. I'll like do my best to catch up for the rest of the class. And uh, she decided to give me a chance basically. And I just found it was, uh, well, it didn't get any easier. Like I was so close to failing. <laughs> like I was really the worst in the class. I was so nervous. Like there's times when there's like a participation round in the class and I was like, I have to go to the bathroom. I'm sorry. <laughs> like I was that afraid of like messing up and being the worst in the class. Cause I was something I was not used to whatsoever. Um, but basically like I'd learned enough Korean at that point and had chosen Korea as like somewhere I want to study and learn more about. So that summer I came to Seoul in 2014 and I was able to go to DMZ and learn from experts here. And I just really fell in love with the country as well. I was like, this place is great. I have to come back here sometime. And I feel like I've learned a lot. And so um, fast forward just a little bit to senior year at UCLA. And I participated in um, the UCDC program. I don't know if you guys would have heard of that before. Um, but it's basically like you uh, secure an internship in DC and like 30 of you from UCLA go and there's even like a dorm there and all the UC students stay in this dorm and do their internships for four days a week and then one day they like take a class with Professor James Devo. And so I was doing an internship in the State Department headquarters for that winter and I'd heard this like, uh, I don't know how I'd heard it, but I'd heard that the Korean government sponsors uh, foreign students to go to Korea and do a grad school program for free. And so I just walked over to the Korean embassy and uh, I, I kind of just like knocked on the doors. I was like, hi, I heard about this like scholarship you guys do. And they're like, uh, yeah, but it's due tomorrow. Like the application's due tomorrow. You can give it to us now if you want. And I was like, oh, I, I left the application at the dorm. I, can I bring it tomorrow? I'm like, I hadn't even started it. And so I rushed back to the dorm. I even needed like a letter of rec. And I begged Professor Devo at the dorm to write a letter of rec for me on the spot. And he helped, he did me a massive solid, wrote the letter. I brought the letter and my application to the Korean embassy the next day, did an interview felt like I'd bombed the interview because like they even asked me to do like an introduction in Korean and literally all I could say was like hi my name is Tom and they're like and and I was like and I went to Korea <laughs> that's it and so I I just kind of felt like I'd bombed the interview but was happy to have at least you know put my hat in the ring and then a few months later I get an email saying hey you're going to Korea this this fall <laughs> You're going to be in a one-year program for Korean language training and then two years of grad school. And so that's basically how I ended up in Korea from that point in 2015. And so I can imagine you're going to Korea. You understand maybe the basics of the language. Sounds like you can say your name and a few other things, and hopefully your, your learning is a little bit better. Are you apprehensive at all that you're going to get this one year crash course in the language. Are you like nervous about moving to a foreign country by yourself? Oh, extremely nervous. I mean, first of all, like when I was in 
Korea the previous summer, I loved it, but I was also like in Seoul, I was in like the really fun like university area. And then where they're sending me to, I didn't have any choice in where I was studying for a year. Like they just picked somewhere kind of away from Seoul to give you like kind of a diverse experience of what the country's like. And where they sent me to, I like asked a Korean friend at UCLA beforehand. I was like, so bro, what's this part of the country famous for? And he's like, um, well, it's Korean food is really good. I was like, what? Like, it's Korea. Like, uh, surely the whole country is famous for Korean food, right? It's like, yeah, that's, that's about it. Also, it gets extremely hot. I was like, okay, great. But uh, yeah, it's basically dropped in the country, not knowing the language. Like, going from, like, the height of my, like, social capital at UCLA of, you know, like, having all these close friends living together and then, bam, like, you don't know nobody, you don't speak the language. And uh, thankfully, I was placed like in a dormitory with students from all over the world who had also interviewed at embassies to, and gotten this scholarship. And so we kind of like formed this like mishmash family. It, of, like, it's like an island of uh, diversity in Korea, because like, I, I don't know if you've like been to the country, or, but like, it's one of the most homogenous countries in the world. That is also something I was like really um, kind of like trepidatious about was because what I'd loved about UCLA was the diversity. Like it was just like I had friends from every race, culture, etc. And then to suddenly be sent to Korea where it's like only Koreans, I was kind of nervous about losing that. And it was such a relief to be put in a dormitory where there's like it's literally like Noah's Ark of like countries. <laughs> There's like one from every single country, basically. And uh, I ended up like rather than like learning like Korean food and like Korean culture, Korean cooking, what I was learning was like how to make biryani from like the Pakistani classmate who's like down the floor. Because like I'd, I'd be in the kitchen making like the most boring spaghetti you've ever seen and just be smelling these amazing smells from the guy next to me. And so I ended up like gaining a greater like multicultural understanding. It was great. And in terms of the the language itself, maybe mm -hmm. for some of our, our lay listeners that speak English and maybe a little bit of Spanish, how hard yeah. is uh, Korean to learn? And tell us a little bit about that process and was it a steep learning curve? Was it, did they kind of throw you in in the beginning and you just kind of were sinking for a bit before you started to swim so for sure like um as, as i mentioned like at UCLA i was like utter trash at the language right i was really really bad but right when i started learning um because like as i mentioned korea has an alphabet i kind of had this like arrogant idea that, like oh like you know it's it's not like caricatures or something like it's got an alphabet i can figure this thing out and at first I was like, uh, you know, spelling things like computer. And it's just like, oh, I can spell computer in Korean. And that's the word that they use here. And I had this idea in my head, like, oh, it's going to be all like this. It's going to be really easy. And then not realizing there's all the vocab, there's all the grammar. There's a reason this language is so hard. And basically, when I came to Korea and had that year of language school, it was just like trial by fire, basically. Like I was making horrible mistakes. 
every day. I was doing pr presentations in front of the class, just absolutely bombing. And uh, I had met this Korean friend through playing soccer, actually, there at the university. And he was kind of like encouraging me and saying, like, you know, don't worry about it. Like, you, you can speak with me in Korean whenever. I don't care if you suck. We can be friends. Like, don't, you don't have to feel like you should go back to the US if you like have a bad presentation. And like, eventually, just by making lots and lots of mistakes, I just eventually became numb to the embarrassment, basically. You kind of just become numb and you don't care if you mess up anymore. But you also like through that trauma, you learn how to speak. And so you also currently right now serve as a, a translator for the, the North Korea report from the Asia Press. Speaking a little bit about language, how much of a difference is there between North and, and South Korean? And what are the kind of stories that, that come out of North Korea that you're helping to translate? Yeah, for sure. So um, I think the linguistic differences basically boil down to the history of the two countries. Like before the Korean War, Korea was just Korea, right? There wasn't North, there wasn't South, there was one place. So they all spoke the same language. There was like regional differences, but it wasn't like that much of a difference. But basically, since South Korea was an ally of the US and North Korea was an ally of like China and Russia, South Korea kind of brought on all these loan words from English, which are basically just English words in their own alphabet with their own pronunciation. Whereas North Korea would either use words of Korean origin or like Russian loan words. And so um, we saw that like these differences can kind of create problems. Like even for the um, inter-Korean hockey team that formed during like the 2018 Winter Olympics here, they made like a unified team of South Korean and North Korean players. And the South Korean players would use like hockey terms from English, right? Like they'd use like box out, you gotta box out the players away from our goal, right? And so that would just be box out. It just, just box out, right? But the North Koreans would use the term Munpakro Mirneki, which means like literally push them out the door. So it's like kind of a more literal thing, but it's like, you know, that's their term for it. That's from Korean. It's not just like English with a Korean accent, basically. <laughs> and so, you know, they have their own uh, difficulties with the differences there. But as for the stories, that are coming from North Korea that I have been helping translate for a long time. Um, these are, it's really interesting because it's like a Japanese um, a media company, Asia Press. And over decades, they've managed to create relations with North Koreans living in the country. They've been able to give them a cell phone from China, smuggle it across the border. And the North Koreans will text some information, they'll have a secret phone call. But this is information and literally from the eyes and ears inside the country, which is super rare. And it's interesting because you can kind of keep your finger on the pulse through what the, the actual North Korean people are seeing. And, and um, sometimes it's just, uh, you know, you can't even believe it, what these people are seeing on their daily basis. And some of the stories can include like, uh, 
you know, when they have a lockdown in their city in North Korea, it's not like, uh, oh, the restaurants are closed. Like, you know, you got to order in. Like, that's not their type of lockdown. Their lockdown is literally 30 days. Everybody cannot leave their house. There will be guards at the outside of the, like, neighborhood block. You, were, you are not allowed out of the area. That's, like, their style of lockdown. And, like, in that context, you know, they don't have medicine. They don't have food. So, the, like, the stories that are coming to us are really harrowing not only did you end up kind of learning the language in, in your one year, we'll, we'll call it a crash course in Korean, yeah. but you also ended up getting a, a master's degree in international cooperation and kind of wanted to, to hear some of your thoughts on the, the differences in how higher level education works in Korea versus the United States, or maybe it's really not all that different. Yeah, sure. Um, so I think maybe on the surface, there aren't that many differences just because it's kind of based on the American system. There are schools that even look like American schools in design. Um, but I would say it's much more competitive to get in. And it's, the reason is because it's kind of all based off your like SAT equivalent, basically. Like when you're taking the SAT here, it's so tense that the police will be escorting people to the class if they're late. Like they literally stopped the planes from flying overhead because it might be a distraction. Like I was playing basketball across the street from a school and I was told to stop playing basketball because the bounces of the ball could distract them for this test. And um, like, that's the type of like hyper tense competitive atmosphere that like is existing to get into the university and it's kind of carried on when you're in and it's hyper competitive and you know it doesn't breed the type of well-roundedness that like UCLA expects from its applicants right like for us it's like oh did you play a sport what volunteer activities did you do like do you play an instrument like Koreans will literally laugh when, when you say like these are the things that I had to do to get into UCLA they're like what <laughs> I don't I don't understand <laughs> and I think like culturally there are some differences too like here they really uh respect their teachers a lot more like being a professor is actually like a massive like like uh social status it's important and um for example they have a day called teacher's day where you show some appreciation for your teacher and I think we we had this like in elementary school, middle school. We you know we like brought in like some flowers or a Starbucks card or something. But here it's like all the way up to grad school. Like I was in grad school, like signing a card with me and the, all the other students, like from our like grad like our grad school level professor. <laughs> and like I was thinking back to UCLA, like on Bruin Walk or like RateMyProfessor.com there's even like a thing where you could say if they're hot or not like how disrespectful is that <laughs> like i could not imagine anything like that in korea i want to go back to i think something interesting that you referenced the uh unified team that korea fielded for the 2018 uh winter olympics mm -hmm. maybe what was that experience like and maybe as you're looking at that team how unusual yet promising was that team and then looking back at that team three years later, was that promise even validated? Right. Um, so I actually had a very unique experience in that 
in the um like the build-up to the olympics like they had to mush this team together right like they didn't field them out for the first time for their first competitive game they had some warm-ups and so i went out to pyeongchang and went to the like newly built hockey center because i was interested in seeing this team play against each other for the, like play with each other for the first time and um it was kind of unbelievable because uh when i arrived to the stadium there was a, a kind of a unification supporting group that was out there in full force and they were like really hyped for this they were extremely uh like hopeful they they loved to see it they're handing out like song sheets to sing and i was kind of going as like kind of like an amateur journalist and uh, i went and asked some questions to the guy and um after asking all these questions the guy organizing it basically just said hey do you want to like grab one of your sweatshirts and join us and i said uh okay cool like you know i'm i'm just an amateur i don't have to like you know be on the side taking pictures and notes that's like i might as well participate and so i put on the sweatshirt that had like the the symbol of the unified korea is like a blue uh just it's the whole peninsula in blue on a white background that's like the flag that everyone had and the sweatshirts they had on and i remember the game so vividly because um now that i remember it properly it was actually north korea against south korea this is their first time meeting this is like the prelude to them joining was them going against each other and so you'd have thought in south korea it would be like oh yeah boo boo north korea like we're gonna destroy you but like all the fans were really it's just like it was like um mom and dad watching their like children in a sporting event against each other they're like super supportive of both and they're singing songs like like we are one we are one and it was just very emotional like um it was definitely very promising and so looking back years later was that promise delivered i mean I'll, of course it wasn't like it's the country isn't unified it wasn't going to become unified through some hockey but i think an event like that really had a big impact like you know just a few months later they had a, a summit together you know president moon and kim jong-un met and it was that type of goodwill that was developed through a joint hockey team that kind of help that atmosphere be built up. So it definitely had a purpose. So would you say that North and South Korea relations are a lot better than they were 10 years ago or 15 years ago? Mm, well, I can't say for sure. I mean, I can only really speak on my own experience since I've been here. Sure. But it definitely went from bad and then to really good in 2018. And then, uh, it kind of uh, is simmering again. But I remember there's a point in 2017, I guess, where our professors were like, yeah, like, you might have to think about how you'll get back to the US if like the war breaks out, like, it's really tense right now. And during that period, during the Olympics, right after Olympics, you know, there, there was nothing like that. People felt very safe. And, you know, there's no talks of war, right? Highlighting what you just said about the fear of coming back to the U.S., I'd be curious about 
you know, and, and maybe you left this out, but I, I'd be curious. 2014, uh, you're studying uh, North Korean free, foreign government. You're in South Korea, I think, at that time. It's about summer. Um, mm -hmm. Around that same window of time, the interview, uh, a Sony Pictures film uh, with James Franco and, and Seth Rogen, uh, is saying that it's going to be released in October. They're marketing it. Uh, but then Sony's hacked. Uh, Obama uh, gets some messages about releasing the film would be an act of terrorism. You're in South Korea at this time. What are you thinking as you're seeing this unfold? Yeah, I, that was kind of a, a crazy film. I don't know if you saw the movie, but like seeing the movie, like I think I can't quite remember the end, but I think they literally murdered Kim Jong-un like on screen. To Katy Perry fireworks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like fireworks going on in the tank. I mean, iconic for some, but definitely like problematic for some viewers of the North, right? <laughs> Not to say that like they could hack Sony because they disagreed with it. But if we're talking about like the threat coming from North Korea, like they have nukes, will they attack us? Are they a super dangerous country? I would say from like a nuclear standpoint, like of course it's dangerous. They have nukes. They could probably hit America with those nukes. That's really dangerous. But they knew if they were even to like put their finger near the button, it would be just the end of the country for them, right? Whereas hacking is something that they're not only super good at because they like raise each children to be hackers, but they're like very willing to use hacking because they know they're not really going to get in trouble for it. Like, what, are you going to sanction them again? Like they're already under sanctions, right? And so seeing what they did to Sony, like it, it, could, easily it could easily escalate to something like we saw with that pipeline recently, right? Like the pipeline's getting hacked, gases prices are going up. They could have an actual impact on American lives that way too. Got it. Makes sense. And, and you talked about the, the missile system a little bit about North Korea and why maybe it wasn't feasible or made sense for them. Can you go into a little bit more depth about uh, why that wouldn't have been a good move for them because of maybe the, the THAAD system that the U.S. and South Korea kind of jointly built? Uh, yeah, sure. And so let me preface by saying I'm by no means like a nuclear missile expert or anything like that. But um, I actually did write my thesis here in Korea about the THAAD crisis, about uh, the effect that THAAD had on regional relations. And um, well, just for listeners who might not have heard the term THAAD before, because it's a little bit obscure, it's basically a state-of-the-art missile system that the US and South Korea kind of had together. The US built it and it's put on South Korea so that it can potentially blow up a missile that's headed towards Japan or the US. And um, what kind of caused the controversy is that China is there, they're relatively close to South Korea, and they thought, wait a sec, you could use this against us if you wanted to, that's not cool. And so China basically used its leverage, its economic leverage, its uh, leverage in terms of tourism, in terms of everything to basically punish South Korea for agreeing to having this THAAD missile. And what I did for my uh, thesis is basically catalog everything that I'd witnessed since the, scan like, since the crisis began, basically. 
And my starting point actually for this was my time in uh, the language course down in the countryside. Because one of the things that uh, happens each year in the countryside is the annual chicken and beer festival, which is an insane like three or four day extravaganza of fried chicken and beer. And the first time I went there, I noticed there was lots and lots of Chinese tourists. And the second year I went there, after that had been introduced, there was absolutely no Chinese tourists anywhere. And I thought, that's really strange. What, what's behind that? And it was because of that. And one of the ways in which China expressed its uh, disappointment with South Korea was by blocking all Chinese tourists from going to South Korea. They just said, they literally told the tour guides, the, the tour companies, I mean, you're not going to South Korea this year. They're on our naughty list. You can't go. And so uh, it wasn't just tourism, like it extended to um, K-pop stars. They couldn't come to China. There's uh, programs in children, in like literal like elementary schools in China saying, don't buy South Korean snacks. They're like a, a bad country. People were ra like raiding the Lotte malls in, in China and uh, like burning Samsung phones, that type of thing. So it, it got really heated. And the whole point behind this uh, movement against that was China wanting to become the security partner of South Korea instead of the US. They're trying to say, look, you guys are close to us. Why can't we be friends? Why do you have to be with the US, which is basically against us? And so in lashing out and punishing South Korea for having THAAD, they basically just did the exact opposite. They made Koreans distrust China. They made the entire South Korean government dream up a new policy called the new Southern policy, which is basically diversifying their economic ties away from China. So we've seen ASEAN countries, we've seen India and Korea just develop way stronger ties because South Korea realized, oh, like China could pull the plug at any time it wants to. So I better not be pushing everything through that cord, right? Like I can't be tied with China at the hip if they're going to act this way, if I make a security decision like that. So back to, to one of the things you were talking about is kind of a, a nuclear North Korea and the threat from that. In the, uh, in the book, Fifth Risk by Michael Lewis, he interviews one of the former Associate Deputy Secretary of Energy, John McWilliams, whose job was risk assessment. And the title of that book is about the, the five biggest risks that this, this former government official sees. And he lists North Korea as one of those and, and the potential threat of a, a nuclear attack from North Korea specifically. And I, I know we talked a little bit about North Korea, if they were to ever send a nuke, would likely get blown up. How worried are, are you and, and maybe the, the Koreans, South Koreans about that? Even if, is there any thought that there might be an irrational actor somewhere in North Korea who, regardless of the outcome, still ends up, you know, sending out nukes? Yeah, I guess there's uh, two things to discuss here. The one is, is Kim Jong-un an irrational actor? Is he so volatile that he 
really can't be trusted with something as dangerous as that. And the other is, what are the thoughts of South Koreans versus those in the US or those in Japan? And I think uh, it's easier to talk about the second one first, so I will. But um, basically, South Korea has been living in this situation for its entire existence, right? Like people grow up here, they die here with knowing nothing different than being like right on the edge of this like dangerous country, right? And so it, like, like uh, studying Korean every day and like you just become numb, like you just become numb to the danger, numb to the threat. People live their lives here not caring about North Korea, not following the news about North Korea's missile tests because ultimately it doesn't really affect their daily lives, you know? Like they just keep on living normal existence. And there have been times in the country's past when it's been way more dangerous and way more, uh, like for example, the South Korean president uh, was almost assassinated by like, North Korean commandos like a couple decades ago. Like that's way more, um, a few decades ago actually, but you know, that's way more influencing in terms of like, your perception as an average citizen, right? Like if North Korea does a little missile test off its shore, you're not really gonna you know, worry about it going to sleep that night. So it's really that type of like danger recognition is something that I think uh, those in America are like way more sensitive to just because it's just a part of daily life here. And then um, speaking on Kim Jong-un as a irrational actor, I what kind of like, uh what frustrates me the most is that people kind of uh focus on the wrong stuff when they're looking at kim jong-un you know they just like they focus on the haircut and they're like wow what what a silly looking guy like he's just a, a fat boy with a funny haircut like of course he's crazy of course he's irrational like that's that's the part and you know they hear like oh this guy claims he got a hole in one like 18 times in a row those are types, like some of those things, like they're, of course, they're kind of crazy, like they're stories, but you got to realize it's a, um, like a God complex in the North. Like this man is a God to his people. And what comes out of the propaganda is stuff to maintain that image, right? So for us, it's like, wow, that's obviously crazy. How could he be thinking rationally when it comes to like, his nuclear capabilities or his like military aspects but that's like just totally separate you know that's like their domestic scene this is what he has to do in order to keep up this image in front of his people and part of that is also maintaining a nuclear arsenal because remember this is a country that uh the memories of war are still really strong in their mind like all the way back from the korean war they still have the marks from it they still have uh they still haven't really built up from it right like places that were destroyed in that war are still destroyed today it hasn't been like south korea that's like really rapidly risen up and can easily kind of like push those like traumatic memories to the side and it's something that the the regime itself reminds the people all the time and it and if the people are having a hard time under sanctions they can't get food they can't get medicine it's the regime's responsibility to say this is because of the US like it's because of the threat that they pose to our nation like they did all the way back then that we have to have a nuclear arsenal 
and you know they don't like that but this is how we're keeping you safe and so for him like having nukes is a must for his own domestic scene right so i think it's something to to understand and we appreciate that level of insight because we kind of don't really, as Americans, get that in our, our media, the, the same level of depth and detail. So appreciate that. Um, only get it when Dennis Rodman goes. Oh, yeah. Can I, can I talk a little bit about Dennis Rodman? Because I have um, I, I have uh, something that a professor here in Korea shared with me about that trip that I think is also important when thinking about like, oh, Dennis Rodman, he's also kind of crazy. You're like, why would he go? That's super dangerous. That's not our country's interests. And I think if you think about it another way, it actually made a lot of sense that he went and was not risky in the slightest. And, and let me try to explain why. Um, so when you have like international cooperation, you can have like political, you can have economic, you could have cultural, right? And like, if we have a political interaction with North Korea, any interaction at all benefits them to a degree because it's like recognition. It's like, it's something that he can show off to his uh, people. He can twist it to look however he wants. It could end up being good for North Korea, right? Economic too, like they're in dire straits, they need some money anything economic might be like twisted by their own use. And if they receive money, which is supposed to be for something humanitarian, maybe they'll find a way to have it benefit their military instead. But with Dennis Rodman's trip, he was going just by himself and for the purpose of kind of just playing basketball in North Korea. And, um, you know, Kim Jong-un's a huge fan of the Bulls, right? Like he loves basketball. <laughs> more than anything and he was just like of course he's going to welcome Dennis Rodman he's like that's awesome I love basketball please come but if you look at it from the benefits and risks to U.S. relations with North Korea there's almost no risks like you know it, it's not really doing anything for North Korea in terms of like they can't use this basketball game to prop up their military it doesn't give them like massive recognition from the U.S. government it's Dennis Rodman and, you know, some of his friends going to play basketball. And the potential benefit of that is that North Korean people can see an American who's not an evil person with horns. Like, you know, they can see, I don't want to say they're going to see a normal American because Dennis Rodman is a bit of a strange, strange guy. But, you know, he's like an American person who doesn't want to kill them. He's a friendly person. And he's a black man as well. Like they also, they're getting this like outlook into a world that they don't really know exists. And I think the benefits from that are stacked up against zero risks. So I think it was a, an effective use of cooperation, perhaps. You kind of highlighted three ways of, of diplomacy that can be brokered. I guess the three avenues being economic, political, and cultural. And, and you mm -hmm. kind of made the argument that in, in this case, cultural makes more sense. And we've seen sports work with Dennis Rodman as well as the unified team. Um, I'd kind of be curious in, in your opinion, do you think that kind of cultural can be an avenue towards kind of brokering, you know, political and economic diplomacy? For example, you highlighted Dennis Rodman and, and you mentioned that he's an African-American male. For example, Joe Biden just recently uh, put some sanctions or, or he said something. 
and it basically angered North Korea and, and they said, hey, don't say what you're saying. You guys already have enough going on in your country with social injustices and racial inequity. How does kind of having these kind of cultural uh, avenues or connections maybe more effective? And, and you highlighted a little bit, but if you can go. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if we're talking with North Korea, it's just that any other type of cooperation has its drawbacks and the potential risks, whereas cultural it's soft, it can form like a good atmosphere and there's low risk. But in terms of a, like, if we think about my own example of the Korean government giving me a scholarship to come to Korea, we can think of that as effective public diplomacy as well. Like in the interview that I originally had back in 2015, they basically asked me like, what's in it for us? Like, why should we, Pay for you to come to Korea and like study here. And I said, well, I want to be a diplomat. I want to be a bridge between your country and my country, and that can help us all. And, you know, now I'm actually helping relations between the UK and Korea. And so it's something that maybe on the surface, it just seems like it's tossing money away for the purpose of like cultural outreach and public diplomacy. But public diplomacy is something that you can't really study using metrics. It kind of just has a cumulative soft power effect. And um, if we think about uh, examples of ineffective cooperation, we can think about the THAAD crisis and what happened with China. Like if you block K-pop stars from coming to China, if you stop tourists from going, those type like negative cultural diplomacy can also have a terrible effect as well because now Koreans view China as a threat they think oh China would probably side with North Korea if we had a war oh China would not be as good an ally as the U.S. and those are the type of um, uh, thoughts that come into play because of poor soft power poor public diplomacy that China was using at the time We can probably say it's a, a two-way avenue in, in the sense that while the U.S. and South Korea have always had cordial relationship, the rise of K-pop in the past, you know, five, ten years has probably humanized that country in a way that hasn't been before for American citizens. Mm. And uh, it's uh, not only just been with U.S. and South Korea, but South Korea and, and North Korea, too, because, you know, these songs are catchy, like. The videos are cool, the dramas are fun. The North Koreans want to see that too. Like they can understand this language and they can get a view of South Korea that way as well and know that, oh, wait a sec, our country isn't the best in the world. And the one just over there is, you know, obviously more affluent than ours. And uh, the way that the Korean government uses and it's a, it's a Korean wave for its own di diplomatic purposes is kind of a top case for how to use your, uh, your cultural assets. Like the Southeast Asians love K-pop, they love Korean dramas, and they're using that as the foundation for replacing China as a major partner, for diversifying amongst several countries. They're using that K-pop as a way to form the relationships, to get tourism going, and it's uh, been pretty successful so far. Has there been a, a BTS or a Blackpink concert in, in South Korea? Have they recovered to the point that stadiums are, are now acceptable? 
been used for? Um, I think they've been having uh, like online concerts thus far. But speaking of Blackpink, we actually had them in our embassy, in the British embassy a few months ago, because um, we got them to sign up as ambassadors for our uh, COP26 climate summit, which is happening uh, this year in Scotland. And so um, I kind of got to witness like the whole logistics of a group like Blackpink. Like I was just watching from uh, my office, which is like on the second floor and just seeing like the, uh, like the tinted out van, like coming through our gates. And it's crazy. The, the level of uh, like secrecy that they have to operate on, like, you know, the kind of like unmarked, you know, um, but the, it's insane also in terms of their effect and the positive impact they can have on our uh, shared goals and like important values, like because their members said, yeah, okay, we'll get involved in climate change. And when they uploaded the video that, that we'd produced, when they'd like done the hashtags for the climate summit, the numbers just went up like insanely, like tripling all the followers on the embassy's social media, like within like minutes. Is just incredible to see. One of the other things we want to talk about is some of the, the volunteer work you do. And I think you mentioned a little bit about it earlier. Um, you volunteer as a tutor for an NGO called Teach North Korean Refugees, and you volunteer for Rotary International. Maybe you can explain to us a little bit about why is, why is volunteering and, and giving back really important to you? Yeah, I'd love to. And um, I think uh, one of those examples, the Teach North Korean Refugees um, experience that I've had was super impactful in terms of the focus of my studies and the kind of how my career went after coming to Korea. Because like you guys, like when I was in the US, all I kind of knew was like Kim Jong-un missiles, like that's the focus, right? In the media, et cetera. And, but when I came to Korea and I met North Koreans through this program, like, and heard their stories and how they ended up in Seoul, it really woke me up to like the human rights aspect. And like over the course of my time in Korea, like, yeah, there's been summits, there's been talks, but the missile situation really hasn't changed all that much, right? Whereas the human rights situation has kind of gone up and down. And I've seen that it's kind of from, a perspective of someone who's not a top missile negotiator. It's something that I could have an impact on myself. And being able to help North Korean defectors settle in South Korea, helping them, because they have no, uh, no English usually when they come. And there's kind of a high level of English that is needed here for some uh, like interactions, like, um, you know, for, for banking, for all this, there's all these uh, massive uh, things that people need to learn when they arrive from North Korea. And being able to help in just a small way by helping them improve their English, whether they just want to be able to study to be a nurse and they need to know some like an anatomical terms, they need to know like the nursing stuff in English, or whether they want to be able to learn English to the ability where they can uh, talk about their experience in North Korea to an English speaking audience, uh, being able to help them with their own goals 
has been really helpful. And I, I found that it was kind of like giving back the experience that that friend in the countryside gave to me. Like when I was like, oh, this language is too hard. I want to go home. Like North Koreans can't go home, right? Like they've made their choice. They're in South Korea for good now. So, but I'm sure they feel the same way. Like English is too hard. South Korean culture is too competitive. I want to go home. So I wanted to be that friend for them to be like, you can speak in English for me whenever, like I'll encourage you. And so that was really meaningful to, for me in that group. And then with Rotary, I found that when I joined, there was a lot of people like me who were Korean government scholarship recipients in the group who were so kind of thankful for what the Korean society provided for them that they wanted to give back in some way. And so that was, um, yeah, it was, it was very meaningful to be able to do that. And then our uh, last two favorite questions. Uh, what is your favorite UCLA memory and who is your favorite Bruin? Okay. Um, so I don't remember uh, how often you swung by my room in Holly, but I had this GameCube that I brought with me from home. Four controllers, GameCube and Super Smash Brothers. And that was basically the secret ingredient that I had for making any friends at all my first two years of college. And the memories that I had from, uh, you know, forming the friend group and, you know, those are the friends that I still have to this very day is those guys who I sat down with to play GameCube in my dorm. And so like, I have like memories like my first UCLA football game, but those are kind of, strong memories that I formed with the people that I'd originally become friends with in the dorm by playing GameCube. <laughs> and then your favorite Bruin. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. So I kind of got to give it to my professor, James Devo from UCDC, just for being such a bro and helping me with that, <laughs> with that uh, letter of rec at the last minute, but also just being, an outstanding professor and then professor russell burgos who was global studies as the, like the major global studies was him like at that time we'd go to his lectures and there'd be the type where you just felt like you had to clap as soon as they ended like not every lecture is like that some you want to leave early but literally his you were like clapping at the end like this is incredible awesome well, thank you so much for joining us on Bruin One Ear and Out the Other. But before we let you go, feel free to give us a 30-second plug for something going on in your life. Thanks. Um, well, I guess I should plug the website that I've been translating for. It's asiapress.org backslash rimjin hyphen gang. Tough URL, I know. But if you type in Asia Press, you'll find it. And then I'd also like to plug um, the YouTube channel of one of the North Korean women that I helped tutor. Her name is Sherry and her channel is Sherry from North Korea. So if you're interested in North Korean human rights, I highly recommend you check out the articles, you check out the YouTube channels. There's a lot to learn. Awesome, thanks Tom. Thanks again to Tom for joining us on the podcast. As always, hopefully everything we talked about today didn't go Bruin one ear, not the other.